Hello and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our bonus series where I talk with someone else. I talk with a writer, podcaster, scholar, artist, a musician about their favorite stories. And joining me today to talk about the classic Edith Nesbitt short story, Man Size and Marble, is writer Eleanor Fitzsimons. Eleanor has written two really impressive author biographies. Uh, one of them is called Wild's Women. This is about Oscar Wilde. And the other is about Edith Nesbitt. And it is called The Life and Loves of E. Nesbitt. Eleanor, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you very much, Dan. Delighted to be here. So how did you get into writing biographies? My goodness, that's a good question. Um, my background is quite varied, actually. My original degrees, my primary degree and my master's degree are business degrees. So I worked for years in um, business consultancy and in marketing. And I, towards the end of my career in, in that area, moved towards research and, and data management and dealing with a lot of data. So I suppose it was natural in a way to keep that very strong research element to my life. But I've always been fascinated in reading and literature, and I think probably would have done an English literature degree if, if circumstances <laughs> had been different. So I think I gravitated towards that naturally. But I suppose like a lot of women, a, a punctuation point in my life was the birth of my first child. And um, we were living in London at the time and we moved back to Dublin and there was a break in my career, a very natural break. And I started to pursue other interests. So I started to write. I started to review some books. I did a bit of work on radio and I thought, no, I want to take this a little bit further. So I went back to university um, about 16 years after having graduated first time round. <laughs> I did a degree, I did an MA in Gender Studies in University College Dublin, and that made me very passionate about writing about women and women's histories and reviving their histories. Um, a lot of women are sidelined, and the obvious candidate, I suppose, really to write about in that instance was Oscar Wilde, because his life had been historically told in terms of his relationships with men, a hugely important aspect of his life, obviously, but it had been neglected, really, the whole area of um the importance of women in his life and, and women were hugely important in his life. So that got me started and I pitched that idea to an agent and took it from there. And so then what led you to, to Edith Nesbitt as your, your next subject? Yes, that's an interesting one. I had um, a contract for two books with my publisher. So I wrote my wild book and then I had to come up with a second book. And actually during the writing of the wild book, I had come across this very young poet and um, this woman who wrote to Oscar Wilde and who asked for some help with the poetry that she was struggling with um, asked him for some advice because he was also a poet and he started off writing poetry as well and at the time he was editing a woman's magazine and he was very supportive and he published some of her poetry and he gave her some help and that woman was called Edith Nesbeth and she was the same E. Nesbeth that I had read as a child and absolutely loved. She was my favourite author when I was young and I particularly loved her Sammy series, her five children and I thought, my goodness, there's that same woman again, but in a completely different guise. I didn't know she had written poetry. And I thought, well, well, maybe I should explore her life in a little bit more detail and find out, would she be a worthy subject um, for a biography? And indeed she was. She had an absolutely fascinating life. But what also really convinced me that I should write the book was that the two previous biographies written about her were both out of print with no prospect of them coming back into print. And I thought, how can there be a situation where this incredibly important writer um, of all kinds of literature, not just children's literature, has no biography in publication about her? So I pitched it again to the publisher and we went ahead and did it. 
Uh, well, let me ask a follow-up question on that right away then, and on, on behalf of myself, but then also on a, a lot of our audience, who I know also are parents of young children. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to be reading books to my child for you know the next seven or eight years, and I'm very excited about that. What is a, a series of her books, or even a standalone book of hers, that you would recommend if, if you had only one to recommend? Oh, right. That's hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, well, my favorites of hers are um, what are called the Samia Trilogy, um, and they begin with five children and eight, which are, people are probably quite familiar with because it's been um, adapted for film and television a number of times. Um, and then she has The Phoenix of the Carpet is number two in that series. And my favourite of all um, is the story of the amulet. And that's all about Egyptian magic and time travel. And it's really wonderful. And she actually borrows quite a bit from her friend, H.G. Wells, when she's writing that book. And she also consulted with um, the head of the uh, British Museum to find out more about amulets and Egyptian magic. And it's just fascinating. So they're my favourites. But probably the favourite of her books, uh, particularly amongst maybe English readers, uh, would be The Railway Children. And again, that's been adapted very successfully um, for film and television. So that's probably her best known classic children's novel. But I think it's kind of different from the rest because it doesn't have that magical element. It's, it's quite a straightforward story. It doesn't have that slightly supernatural, time travel um, element to it <laughs> that I really enjoy. <laughs> well, I feel confident speaking for not just myself, but for every listener to this show when I say we're going to go for the supernatural <laughs> over the, uh, the mundane <laughs> story. So that's a great recommendation. Well, what was researching her life like? What uh, you know? And here I'm asking as a historian, mm-hmm. uh, what, what records of her life survive besides her own writing and I guess these letters to Oscar Wilde Yes, it's quite difficult to research her life, actually, because unfortunately, a lot of her letters were destroyed. Um, There is an archive of her work, and it's in um, the United States. In fact, as a lot of very good archives are, it's in Tulsa. And the archive there was extremely helpful and important to me. There's a lot of um, family photographs. They're hugely important. You can tell an enormous amount about somebody's life from their photographs, obviously. And there is a a number of letters, a number of important letters and some diary notations. But the bulk of her letters, particularly letters to her son, Paul, her eldest boy, were burnt by his widow after he died because there was a fear that this would just bring too much attention on the family. Um, Relationships could be a bit strained and a bit difficult at times. And so a lot of really important documents were destroyed. So really, her biographers, her subsequent biographers are very dependent on the first biography um, ever written of Inez, but And it was written very shortly after she died, where a lot of her friends and relations were still alive and um, a lot of interviews were carried out with them. So the information is very often secondhand. It's firsthand accounts by people who knew her, but there are very few surviving letters or diary entries. So it can be a little bit difficult at times to, to get at the essence of her. Learning about uh, a writer that you really loved when you were a, a child can be a lot like uh, the first time you, you realize that your own parents are actually just people as well. So what was the most surprising thing that you learned about Edith Nesbitt's life? Oh, my goodness. What a difficult question. The most surprising, <laughs> <laughs> the most surprising thing, um, that she wasn't really a feminist at all, that she wasn't terribly supportive of women, I suppose. I found that surprising and a little bit disappointing maybe because she was such an iconic um, working woman. She was the breadwinner in her family. She was the one who did all the hard graft and wrote all the stories. And I think it's important to remember that she always wrote for money. Everything she wrote, apart from some of her poetry, she wrote with an eye to the commercial market. So she she was very good at balancing getting her own ideas and, and, and her own passions out there. While at the same time, always thinking, will somebody buy this? Does somebody want to read this? Will I get paid for this? Because I've got a 
gas bill to pay or I have to pay for groceries next week. Um, so she was very iconic in that sense and that she was a real pioneer of working women. But she wasn't particularly in favour of women getting the vote. Um, she, she had some quite legitimate reasons for that. She was a socialist and she felt that if women were given the vote, it would be conservative voting women who were given the vote first and that that would be very bad for the socialist cause. And she was right. But it wasn't just that. I mean, she, wasn't, she, she was very essentialist, really, in her views on gender. And she did sort of believe in this strong man being the man of the household and, and the more timid woman. Um, and her own husband was very masculine, strong, misogynist, difficult man, <laughs> philandering man. So um so that was a bit disappointing actually. But yeah, that was probably the most surprising thing. Right. And her her home life, her family life was a bit unorthodox as well. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Um, she married this man who I mentioned, Hubert Bland, and she married him when she was quite young. She was 21 and she was also seven months pregnant with their first child. And there is a suggestion that he sort of dillied and dallied a bit before he finally agreed to marry her which would have left her in a very difficult position at the time as a young unmarried mother. So when they finally did get married, she was 21 and she was seven months pregnant. And for the first few months of their marriage, they actually lived separately for a number of reasons, one of which was because he contracted smallpox and he had to quarantine away from their newborn baby and he went back to live with his mother. But it seems fairly clear that he was involved with at least one other woman who believed that they had a sort of an engagement, a sort of a promise to each other. And he didn't tell his mother or this other woman that he was married. And in fact, there's a very interesting census um, document and, and census documents are a fund of, of amazing information where he puts himself down as unmarried and she's living in this house with this newborn baby and she puts herself down as head of the household and, and mother of this child. And he's living with his mother and he puts himself down as single. I mean, that's really sort of set the tone for their marriage, to be honest. <laughs> right. And she she actually even ends up really sort of raising as her own children, children that he fathers with other women. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Another extraordinary situation. So she, early in her writing career, when she was, again, just literally pounding the pavements of London, trying to sell her stories, she walked into um, a magazine publishers and she met a young woman there called Alice Holtzson. And she got soaking wet in the rain and she was trying to sell the story that she had. And Alice Holtzson, being a kind woman, invited her in and gave her a cup of cocoa and invited her to sit by the fire. And they became very friendly to the point that Edith Nesbitt invited Alice Hudson into her life and introduced her to her husband. And within a couple of years, the next thing she discovered was that this woman, Alice, was pregnant. Uh, she wouldn't disclose who the father of this baby was. So Edith, out of the kindness of her heart, said, look, I'll take you in. You can become a sort of a nursery maid to my children and I will raise your baby as mine. And it was only subsequent to that that she discovered that the father, this unknown father of this baby, this little girl, was her own husband. So I think she ranted and raved for a bit and she wasn't terribly happy with the situation. But the pragmatic decision was taken that she would continue to raise this child and that she would continue to have this woman in her home. And several years later, over a decade later, a second child was born, um, a little boy was born to this woman. And again, Edith Nesbitt's husband, Hubert, was the father. So very, very unconventional. 
I mean, if this is not begging to be turned into a, a you know a high quality Netflix TV show, I don't I don't know what is. We should be perfect. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you a question that that's that's maybe uh, changing course a little bit here. But we we read a lot of writers who were active uh, when Nesbit was here in sort of the late Victorian and then the the Edwardian era, uh, who were making a living from their writing. Uh, two writers in particular who are real staples of the show: uh, William Hope Hodgson and Arthur Mackin, and we. We tend to think of these writers as, uh, when we're analyzing, when we're critiquing their stories, we tend to think of those stories as you know, being written under duress, of, as you say, needing to pay a gas bill or needing to buy groceries next week. Mm. How, how well was Edith Nesbitt doing as a writer, uh, financially, I mean? Um, her success came quite late in her life, actually. So at the beginning, it was really, really difficult to make ends meet. And what she started off doing was, she was, she was a very good artist, so she started off illustrating cards, Christmas cards and, and greeting cards and writing the verse inside. That's how she, she began to make some sort of an income out of her writing. And then the publishers that she was working with and the card manufacturers, they started to produce these little gift books and they asked her, could she write a few stories? And she just used to kind of churn them out. It was quite difficult. She didn't have any great passion for the story she was writing at the time. They were quite twee little um, moral tales for Victorian children, really. So it began from there her real passion was poetry and she often said how she wanted to devote all her time really to writing particularly socialist poetry and very sort of pioneering political poetry but nobody wanted that nobody would pay for it (laughs) as is still the case I suppose poetry is very difficult to make a living out of so she was a published poet but that wasn't really where the money was coming from and then she started to write um, really almost by chance she started to write these stories for her own children and populated with her own children so the characters in her stories are a combination of her own five children two adopted and, and three her own and her own childhood and her brothers and sisters experience and she started to write those often very autobiographical and they were the ones that really took off and gave her great success but at the same time she was also writing these very sort of um oh um formulaic stories for adult women um these kind of courtship plots not in any way sort of feminist plots about young girls who you know try and have careers but end up meeting a man and are swept off their feet and get married and uh, none of those have really survived because they weren't terribly good and then she also started <laughs> writing these quite chilling horror stories and these ghost stories, which were very successful and, and were very popular and are probably still to this day underrated, but are some of her best writing, really. And I think sometimes she shows her true self and her true feelings through them because she's not as constrained as she was when she was writing her twee little Victorian children's stories or her twee little <laughs> um, stories for adults. So, yes, yeah, she, she wrote across the board. She wrote anything that, that people would pay for just to pay the bills. And there are brilliant descriptions. She, she had a habit of writing longhand on this kind of shiny coloured paper, often blue paper. And there's descriptions of her sitting at her desk and just writing the pages and then throwing them on the ground one after the other after the other. And then at the end of a session, she'd gather them all up and and pile them all together into a pile. And then she'd sweep down to a party downstairs. But she wrote and wrote all day long and worked really hard. Yeah, well, in, in the topic of work and, and women working, trying to make a living is really central to the story that we're about to, about to talk about. And so I think that is going to be really fascinating to 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 do, as as you suggest, to sort of use this story as really a sort of glimpse into her her life and also her her worldview. And you've already satisfied some of the questions that I have really about the the role of of women or the depiction of women in these these horror stories has not <laughs> nearly been as feminist as I I had been expecting. Go, going to these stories. 
hours knowing that she had been a socialist. I, I had assumed a lot more feminism than we really find here. Mm, less than you'd expect. She was a very, very complex woman. You know, she was invited to give a speech one time by the Fabian um, Society, which she was formative in, in setting up um, a socialist society in, in Victorian England. And they invited her along on the basis that she was this incredibly successful working woman. And she basically stood up on stage and said, well, women should really stay at home with their children and cook nice dinners for their husbands. And uh, people were aghast. They were horrified. They really sort of had to suppress that talk and not publish it and bring somebody else in the next week who was a woman doctor to talk instead. And they were really taken aback by how little support she really had for other women, you know, and then for women with careers in particular. So, yeah, complex women. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think uh, for those of us in, in America who've just watched uh, the most recent season of The Crown and have seen that this is the case with with Margaret Thatcher as well. I mean, we were really, my wife and I were quite surprised to see that mm. depiction of Margaret Thatcher as being sort of anti, anti-feminist. Yeah, really. actually, there are, there are real parallels there. You're right, I haven't thought about that before, but it's a similar situation. A very, very strong pioneering woman who was not terribly supportive of other strong pioneering women. Yeah. Well, before we transition into to talking about the the story about Man Size and Marble, I just want to say that that I of course have read the Life and Loves of E. Nesbitt. I did this when Brandon and I were doing our episode on the only Nesbitt story that we've done so far, the Ebony Frame, which we both really loved, and I really enjoyed your book, and so I do highly recommend it to our listeners. It's just a really fantastic book. So I was very excited to have you on today. Well, let's move into talking about this story that you have picked out. And this is Man Size and Marble. This is uh, from one of her collections in, in 1893. Uh, before we get into discussing it, I'm just going to do a little quick synopsis here just to orient listeners who perhaps have not read the story at all or, or haven't read it uh, along with us, read it in a while. And the story here, this is contemporary to its composition. So, you know, it's the, the end of the 19th century. Our two main characters are a young and recently married couple. They're trying to make a living as artists. One of them is a, a writer. The, the woman's a writer. The husband is a, a painter. Uh, they don't have a lot of money, and so they have to rent a cottage in the, the countryside of, of Kent in southern England. Uh, they get a local housekeeper. This is an old woman who can, of course, tell them all the local lore that they need, uh, and especially about the knights who lived here in the late Middle Ages and made a living by what I'm going to describe anyway as, as terrorizing the local populace. But we can, we can talk about what Nesbitt really had in mind there. But at any rate, these knights were punished by God for their wicked deeds. And uh, the big house that they lived in was struck by lightning. And hey, it turns out that the couple whose story this is are now actually living among the ruins of that house. But, you know, it's fine. Don't worry. Everything's going to turn out all right, except, you know, it's not. And so uh, even though these knights were wicked, they were actually entombed in the church. And even now they have life-size marble statues there. And our couple even goes to the church, which is it's actually quite close. They can see the church from the window. Uh, they go there to check this out. But what matters is that there's a a local legend that on Halloween night at 11 o'clock, the statues come to life and walk around the land that they used to own when they were alive. And, you know, maybe that story is nonsense, but the housekeeper does not want to be here to find out. So she is taking an unexpected vacation. And of course, the statues do come to life, which the the narrator, uh, by the way, that's that's the husband. This is years later. Uh, so the, the husband who's narrating this, this story to us, he discovers that the statues have come to life when he is out for his nightly walk in smoke. And when he sees that the statues are not in the church anymore, he rushes home, uh, or at least he tries to. He's actually intercepted by the local doctor who happens to be crossing the field on his way to see a patient. And the, the doctor delays the husband from getting home. And 
when now the the two of them get to the cottage, they discover that the wife is is there. She's she's but she's she's dead, and and clutched in her hand is a gray marble finger from one of these statues. So I've, I've actually left out all the important details, which is to say, right, everything that speaks to the theme of this story. So we'll have to talk about those. But I just want to really open up the conversation, Eleanor, by asking you why, you know, of all of the, the Nesbitt horror stories, this is the one that you selected. Um, yes, that's an interesting question. It's the one that most people seem to select, actually, it's representative of probably the best of, of her writing in this genre, because it's the most anthologized I just think it's a great story. And I also think it's one of the stories that gives a great insight um, into her own feelings and beliefs on Victorian marriages and on the patriarchy and on her own marital situation. She's a little bit more critical in this story, I think, of her, the difficulties that she suffers in her own marriage and her own husband's attitude towards her um, than she would be prepared to be perhaps in some of her other writing or prepared to be to his face or, or to their friends. <laughs> so I think it gives some real insights into her thinking, um, particularly on on the patriarchy, it's it's interesting that the wife, Flora, she dies, but her death is not a punishment for anything that she's done. She's done nothing wrong. In fact, she's the, the heroine of the story in many ways. But she dies as a victim of this circumstance and situation that's that's been allowed to manifest itself where women are not taken seriously, where they're pushed down, where they're uh, infantilized, where their their warnings aren't taken seriously. And the end result of all of this, this, this man who refuses to take her seriously, is that he kills her and that she dies. You know? So I think that's, that says a lot of very interesting political things um, about the times she was living in. And actually, it's been mentioned uh, by people who have commented on this story that she she manages to achieve that balance that I talked about before, where she writes this very exciting, commercially uh, viable story, but at the same time, she makes a lot of very hard-hitting political points in it. And that's a very difficult thing to do well, and I think she does it extremely well here. I, I agree. I mean, this story, I think, you know, the sort of two biggest themes here are really about gender and about class. So you can see her her socialism, her Fabian Society membership sort of on full display here. But yeah, I was really struck as well by the, the, the tension in the moment when we know that the husband going out into the night is going to lead to nothing good. We don't necessarily know that Laura's going to die at that at that point, but we know something bad is going to come of, of him going out mm. into the night, which is, of course, set up because, you know, by the fact that she asks him not to go out and i i was interested in really in just in how to even understand the the dialogue there you know over a century removed from uh from these modes of modes of speaking because my inference about laura asking her husband not to go out for his routine nightly walk where he smokes on his pipe uh, some of the language that she was using there to me i i thought that she was asking him to stay in so that they could have sex because they've had a nice day together and she's feeling really close to him but he he either doesn't realize that or he's just maybe so addicted to nicotine that he has to go have his pipe but I just felt like what a you know what a dummy oh absolutely yeah I mean he's so completely dismissive of her I, I it's funny I didn't really pick it up so much on I think she was using that kind of language to try and persuade him to stay because she knew that he wouldn't take her seriously if she used the language that she wanted to use which was that she was afraid that she had a credible reason for feeling fear and that he should trust her instincts and her instincts was that there was something wrong and that wasn't working so she said oh no we'll stay with me because it would be nice if we were together you know and I think that, that was a ruse <laughs> she was using right. that as a ruse to try and persuade him to stay because she knew that the other tactic wouldn't work with them because he was 
so dismissive all the time of anything she said and so dismissive of her what he saw as whims. And I mean, he was already dismissing the fact that she was out of sorts as being overtired because she'd done some housework, you know, which he, he's he's really a difficult character to like. But he, he's quite interesting because he's dismissive not just of her, but of all women. You mentioned uh, the Mrs. Dorman character and she's very well named Dorman, you know, Dorman. She's this kind right. of protective figure who guards <laughs> the boundaries and she's this Cassandra-like figure, you know, who, who puts out these warnings about what's going to happen, but she's just not believed by him. And I think it's very interesting, you mentioned class there as well as gender, that there's very much a class element to the story. This husband, this this Jack fellow, he treats her almost like an anthropological experiment. You know, he looks at this peasant woman and her stupid superstitions and, and how crazy and almost quaint that she can believe these these silly things. But he's so mistrusting of his wife that he doesn't even share these fears with his wife. So while Laura is warning about this awful thing that's going to happen, she doesn't know the local folklore. She hasn't been told that there's this possibility of these statues walking on Halloween night. Um, she just has this feeling that something awful is going to happen. And perhaps that's part of the reason why he dismisses her fears, because he thinks, well, I mean, she has no reason to have these fears. I think for anyone who's ever read any story ever, though, I think you know that if someone who doesn't can't possibly right know what there is to be afraid of is suddenly afraid, you should you should take that seriously. You know, it's like it's like wondering what your cat is staring at. You can't see it, but you know there's something there. So get out. It's the, and and he's just he's so he's doubly kind of dumb there at, at that at that point for sure. And yeah, dismissive of Mrs. Dorman. Not, not I think on on gender lines, on on class lines, but also just on on I think sort of. Temp- temporal lines as well, right? Like he clearly has this real uh, Victorian uh, pride in the sort of progress that's been made in the 19th century, the sort of scientific progress of the 19th century and is dismissive of these tales from the Middle Ages back when everyone Mm. was Catholic, right? Very dismissive of that. Absolutely. Well, it was a very interesting time in history because there was this great tension at the time between science and Darwinism in particular, but science in general, and a, a belief in something more supernatural. You got this enormous tension. And there was also a huge attempt, I think, to see could the two live side by side. So you had scientific investigations of manifestations of ghosts and, and poltergeists and that kind of thing uh, in this attempt to comfortably accommodate both sets of beliefs. So there was a real clash at the time, I think. And there, there is this portrayal along gendered lines in this story of the very rational, progressive man who believes in evidence and science. And then the woman who believes in the supernatural, but in fact, she's right. You know, so her, <laughs> her feelings and, and sensations and, and beliefs, they're correct. They're the correct ones at the end of the day. And, and Nesbitt herself was fascinated by magic and by the supernatural. And I think in a way, she strikes a blow here for the fact, you know, for, for saying something like, well, not everything can be explained away by science. And there has to be room to allow for the possibility of other explanations. You know, and, and that's a very interesting, yeah, very interesting tension in the story. Yeah, and I don't think it's it's accidental, right, that she's decided to have the the only other character from the village besides the the housekeeper, besides Mrs. Dorman, uh, show up in the story is the doctor, right? Someone who would mm. be a man of science. I mean, it's also important for the plot that this this character has a plausible reason to be out in this uh, this field in the middle of the night, like going to see uh, you know another patient on the other side of the field. But but still, he is a, a man of science, and and that's really mm. sort of the guise that he has here, right? When Jack runs into him as he's trying to run home, who says. 
oh, come on, you, you know, you can't possibly believe that the statues are out walking around, even though, you know, you, you, you think that you've seen that. You obviously have not. We've got to go back to the church together. We'll look and you will see that you've just been mistaken, right? Because he's so insistent on that. Though I also was really struck by the, the way in which uh, masculinity plays a role in Jack's motivations, in particular in this moment. Yes. Because he, he doesn't want to go back to the church. He really wants to get home and, and just you know, check on his wife, make sure she's all right. Also, maybe he himself is a little bit afraid. But then the doctor calls him a coward or says he's going to tell everyone he's a coward if he doesn't go back to the church with him. And that really, he, that he can't stand. So that's what really cost Laura her life, probably. Absolutely. Yes, you're quite right. It's a really pivotal moment in the story, isn't it? Yeah, the Dr. Kelly character is, is really important. And he he represents this idea of this sort of male, uh, Victorian male authority figure. Doctors have a lot of authority, very much scientifically based authority. But the doctors crop up again and again in stories like this. So I think in particular, if you look at a story like The Yellow Wallpaper, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, mm-hmm. there's this idea of this masculine medical insensitivity. You know, it's everything has got to be fact-based and don't be silly and often speaking towards women and saying, you know, you must be imagining that because there's no rational explanation for that. So, so that he is one of those characters, that Dr. Kelly. It's a pity he's Irish. <laughs> Didn't like the fact that he was Irish. <laughs> but again, probably very charming and very persuasive is the idea there. Um, and he does, uh, he appeals to the masculine sensibilities of the Jack character. And he says, you know, I will forever call you a coward and, and almost suggests that he'd be telling everybody else that he meets as well. This man is ridiculous. He's a coward. He believes this nonsense. He ran out of the church and home to his wife because he was scared. And, and this is what convinces Jack to turn around and, and walk back to the church with him to see for himself that, that nothing is amiss and nothing is afoot. But there is actually another character in this story as well, a character that's often overlooked and that plays a very minor part. There's a woman who stayed in the house where Jack and Laura now live the previous summer. Um, and she's referred to by Mrs. Dorman. And she is a very interesting character because she's an independent woman who lives on her own. She doesn't have a husband. And Mrs. Dorman, rather than go to her husband, who doesn't exist, goes directly to her with these tales of what happens on Halloween night and these figures who who walk uh, abroad and come back to, to their home place. And she leaves. As soon as she hears that story, she packs up and she leaves a month before Halloween because she says, I'm not taking any chances either. So that's a very interesting, that character is interesting for lots of reasons. One is because she's another woman who takes this threat very seriously and then who leaves. But also because there's no deference to a male there because there isn't a male uh, in between her and the Mrs. Dorman character. Mrs. Dorman goes directly to her with her fears and the fears are taken seriously. Right. So are, are you insinuating then that uh, if, if Mrs. Dorman had gone straight to Laura in this case, that everything would have worked out fine? Well, I don't know if Laura would have had the power to persuade Jack to leave, yeah. even if she had been in possession of the full facts. And in a way, her fear without knowledge makes her more credible because if she had been told something awful happens on Halloween night at 11 o'clock and suddenly she has an uneasy feeling on Halloween night at 11 o'clock, you just go, well, that's just because that crazy woman down the village told you that, you know, whereas without knowledge, she still has the feelings of unease. And in a way that should be taken more seriously because obviously it's some external force that's causing her to feel this way rather than just some silly story that she's heard. So I don't think she would have persuaded Jack. In fact, she probably would have been less successful if that's possible if, if she had been in possession of the information. Right. And I, I guess we see that in his character when she's really quite out of sorts. I mean, she's she's crying. She's so agitated simply 
because she does know, has been told that the housekeeper is going to to leave, that Mrs. Dorman is going to leave, which is which means that it's going to be up to her to do all of this this housekeeping in this this house that doesn't have all of the nice amenities that we take for granted here in the the twenty first century. She's going to have to do all of that like really hard physical labor herself. She's so upset about it, and he he tries to comfort her, but he also at the same time does doesn't seem to be taking her very seriously. Uh, and his solutions to this are to to try to persuade Mrs. Dorman not to leave or to to get someone else. Never once does he say, I'll help. And that's also interesting because he's a very unreliable narrator. I mean, he tells us that she is upset because Mrs. Dorman is leaving and she doesn't want to do the housework because she doesn't like doing housework. Whereas there's also a strong suggestion in the story that what little money they have, and they clearly don't have very much money, but what little they do have comes through her writing and um, that she's the one who's earning. And that would very much tie in with Nesbitt's own situation because she was the one who earned money in her family through her writing and that it's Laura who's earning the family income what little of it there is by writing and if she has to also incorporate this enormous workload of, of housework on top of that well then they could really struggle and that may be where her upset is coming from whereas the husband is an artist and I'm sure he's very talented and all the rest of it but there's no evidence that he's bringing in any sort of income into the family. Right, and I mean this. This really is a way, I think, for for us as, as you know, people now to to really empathize with these with these characters because this has been a, a situation that so many people in COVID nineteen have had, you know, in in lockdown, having to work from home, and then also mm. suddenly have to provide childcare and realizing you can't quite do both at the same time. And how do you manage that? I mean, that that you know, we, so we can we can think about how we felt in that situation and and, and imagine that that's what Laura's feeling at Absolutely. this time as well. Yeah. yeah, I think she feels completely overwhelmed. And he's quite selfish and dismissive. And he says, you know, it's just because she doesn't like housework. You know, she's, she's <laughs> she won't have her servant anymore. But it may be a completely realistic fear that the whole thing is just going to fall apart if she can't devote her time to bringing in the income. You know? Right. And and one of the things I, I well, I hesitate to say love, I, I say I thought was a nice touch. I, I enjoyed in a story standpoint is that, of course, this this narrator who is, as you say, unreliable. I mean, he describes this period when she's not writing and instead is doing all of this housework as some of the happiest days of their marriage, which, you know, I'm just not sure I buy that. I'm not sure Laura would have agreed. <laughs> I'm not sure she would have agreed. Absolutely. And he's interesting because he he portrays himself as this very progressive character, this new man, almost in our sort of language that we use. Um, and that's the way he'd like to be seen. But actually, he's a really traditional man. And there are lots of things in the, in the uh, story that give us clues to, to reinforce that, even down to the fact that he smokes a pipe. So at the time, people smoked cigarettes. And Nesbitt herself was an avid cigarette smoker and there was a lot of, sort of gender <laughs> politics weirdly enough around smoking um, and it was only very it was it was still very unacceptable for women to smoke cigarettes but it was a little bit acceptable for bohemian women but women certainly would never have smoked a pipe a pipe was a very masculine thing to to do to smoke a pipe is very masculine and he goes out and he smokes his pipe even though he's a young man who portrays himself as very progressive and, and very enlightened he's still a pipe smoker he's just an old-fashioned Victorian man in many ways and who wanted this very, I think, narrowly defined marriage where people behaved as expected. You know, I had not thought about the pipe as being really this sort of totem of exactly all of his attitudes. I think I just take for granted that everyone is always smoking pipes in these stories from the 1890s. But I think that probably is because all of these writers who do these horror <laughs> stories are trying to signal to us that that's, that's who the character we're reading about is, yeah. is this kind of old fashioned person. I think there might be something in that actually, yes, because cigarettes were what progressive, young, enlightened 
people smoked. Certainly in Nesbitt's case and, and from her own experience, um, she would have, all of her friends would have smoked cigarettes all the time and she would have smoked cigarettes, whereas pipes were very stolid, old fashioned kind of a thing to do. Yeah, well, there's definitely, I think, an, an, an academic article about uh, pipe use in uh, Findesecla weird fiction <laughs> to be written there. Something there. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I can, I'd, I'd like to steer us into thinking about about class in this mm. story a, a little bit. You know, you mentioned the the lack of money, the the sort of low income that they have as as artists, as kind of bohemians. That seems to be, you know, that's that's the impetus for why they're out here in the country to begin with, yes. and all of the sort of emotional tension between them. But the background of this. Right, the backstory, the thing that happened in the past that is going to come back and is the death of Laura, is these landowners from you know some sometime before the the Reformation. So I don't know. We'll just say the late Middle Ages. Shorthand these these knights who were struck down by God for their their deeds is really all mm-hmm. Mrs. Dorman says. I was really left wondering what those deeds might be. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yes, it's a, that, that's very interesting too, because a lot of this is based again on, on what really happened. So the story is set in a real place, um, a place that Nesbitt was very familiar with, and that's a place on the Kent coast. Kent is um, a southeastern county in, in England, and you probably people will be familiar with things like the White Cliffs of Dover. So Dover is in Kent, and it's the it's the um, location for all of the major ports. So a lot of invaders would have come from the sea in through Kent and a lot of them were marauding. You know, you would have had Norman marauders and, and I think they had Vikings. Certainly we had Vikings here in Ireland, but perhaps they had Vikings as well. But marauders would have come in by sea. And there is a suggestion in the story that these knights, these men were men that came by land and sea and they pillaged and um terrorized the inhabitants and the indigenous people who lived in, in that area. Um, the church that's mentioned, and this place, Brenzet, is a real place. And in that church is a tomb. Now, it's not to knights or anything like that, but it's a tomb to a man called John Fagg and his son, also called John. And they died in the 1600s. And it's a really striking tomb because it has two marble statues of two men lying on top. But one of the men is propped up on his elbow looking down on the other. And it's kind of assumed that it's father looking down on son. And that's a church that Nesbitt would have gone into many times. She holidayed in that part of, of England. She cycled around on her bike through all the, the roads and, and explored everywhere. And she would have seen that statue. And I think that set her mind thinking of, wow, what if a marble statue came to life? What if a man rose up off, off the tomb? <laughs> so that's that certainly would have been a spark. But I think this idea of the marauders coming from the sea, that part of England is full of superstitions. It's marshland. There are a lot of weird kind of mists all the time. There's a lot of talk of this liminal space, um, this kind of crossing over uh, through mist, which is a very um, folklorish thing. We have it in Irish folklore as well a lot. So a lot of of superstitions and, and fear coming from both the kind of supernatural idea of things coming through the mist and coming from the real experience of marauders coming from the sea would have been very much alive and well in that area. There would have been a lot of stories that, that could feed into this idea of these two men and um, these two knights. Um, what's also interesting about them as well, there's a sort of a religious aspect to this story. And slightly, it has been described as being slightly kind of anti-Catholic. Um, these men who were clearly evil in their lives and, and <laughs> despicably, and they're punished by God, as you say, their house is struck by lightning, it's destroyed. But they're not punished by man. They're able to buy 
their way into the church in a sense. They have these indulgences. They're they're allowed to have this magnificent tomb. You know, they're they're fated in the church. They're prominent in the church. Um, why why would men who behave so badly and who are so evil be given these lovely marble statues to commemorate them in death? And and that's there's a sort of an unfairness in that. You know, there's almost this idea that the church will forgive you anything as long as you have the cash to pay for for your tomb um, to be commemorated. Um, there's also the idea that the church is very intolerant of women, the church is very misogynistic, very patriarchal. Those kind of ideas come into play as well, I think. Right. It's it's hard to tell if the, the critique of, of Catholicism here, you know, critiquing Christianity at a, a time when Catholicism would have been the type of Christianity, the only type of Christianity in England that there would have there would have been. But it's hard to hard to tell how much of that is uh Victorian Protestant anti-Catholicism and how much of that is is this Marxism that is so important to her. Where here, right, she's she's showing us, you know, here are the here are the wealthy landowners and they're terrible, and then here's the church and they're terrible. I mean, this this is just like every Marxist political cartoon ever, right? True, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Actually, it is. It's very much a sort of a, a socialist Marxist thing, I suppose, as much as anything else. And in fact, Nesbitt. Um, was quite interested in Catholicism as a lot of Victorians were and there is a suggestion that she converted she certainly became quite involved with the church I think she did convert in fact towards the end of her life particularly after the the death of her son. She had a son, Fabian, who died when he was 15 and she was in despair afterwards. And she did turn to the church and she turned to um, individual priests and also to the the sort of comforting trappings and rituals of the Catholic Church. So she wasn't particularly anti-Catholic herself, but she certainly was anti-ill-gotten wealth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that really struck me in this story that that that's really all that we get about these characters, right? They're simply, they seem to simply be evil by nature of having been these landlords. I mean, she, you know, we, we're, we're only learning about this lore that of course, Mrs. Dorman is aware of only through this sort of oral folk tradition. It's not like yes. she's been in some archives and sort of has particular specific anecdotes. Like she's looked at the roles, the sort of, uh, you know, manorial roles to see how much they were, you know, charging <laughs> rent for the lands. And so on. I mean, that's me thinking like a medieval historian there. Right. But she has not done that. So she, only has these tales, but that that's really all that that Nesbitt needs here, right? To to portray that that there's obviously something sinister about these two statues. Yes, absolutely. I mean, she would be working on the basis of oral tradition, as you say, and stories handed down. And I suppose anybody who is the tenant of a powerful and wealthy landowner often has a bad experience with them and doesn't have a very um, good feelings of, of goodwill towards them. So yes, it's, it's uh, likely to have been this idea of the peasant under the oakle and the, the rich landowner who just doesn't care. Right. And, and, you know, I don't know how much Nesbitt was really trying to ground this story historically. I mean, probably not really much, much at all, but I can't help but, but think about it in those, those terms. But, you know, this in, in England, if we're talking about the 14th or 15th century, I mean, this would have been a time, especially in Southern England, with a lot of up peasant uprisings actually against exactly people yeah. like this. People were, peasants were becoming very aware of exactly the extent to which they were being unfairly ex- exploited following the, the Black Death. And so, yeah. It's it's grounded, yes. I think. Mm, very much so. Yeah. You mentioned earlier too about the the fog, about the marshland here, and I, I just I, I don't have a whole lot to say about that other than that you know we've been talking about this story for a while, and and something that I have neglected to bring up, but I want to make sure that we we say is this is a really beautifully written story. There's some gorgeous descriptive passages here, especially of the the landscape and and the night in question in particular is just described mm. so 
eerily. It's so good. Beautifully written, absolutely. Nesbitt is, I think, undervalued as a nature writer and as a writer of the English landscape. She had a great appreciation for the English countryside. And in fact, she um, really disliked urbanisation and building and um, often fled from areas where she had lived very happily when the builders came and started erecting these row upon row upon row of houses. So she has a really strong appreciation for the countryside and a particular love for this area in England, this marshy um, sea marsh type of an area, very unusual flora and fauna. So she does absolutely write beautifully. And I think that's where her poetic sensibilities are, are best seen in her nature writing and her descriptive writing. Yeah, and especially now that you, you've, you've talked too about how she was a working writer, she had to crank these stories out to to pay the bills. I'm, yeah. I'm really blown away by the fact that this was probably a at best a second draft of this story before she had to send it off, you know, to get to get published. And it's just beautiful from from the go from the get go. I really really marvel, really admire her skill here. Absolutely. And it may be that she borrowed passages perhaps from other writing that she had done on the landscape. You know, she may have reused uh, images and and passages uh, because you do see echoes sometimes in her stories uh, where she has taken from other stories. And even some of her children's work feeds into the idea of an unreliable narrator, in fact, is a, a trope and a theme that she uses a huge amount in her Bastable stories, the stories for Bastable children like um, the, the Treasure Seekers. So she does, I think, have certain reliable pieces of writing and passages that she maybe returns to again and again and recycles a little bit. Um, and she's not averse to borrowing a plot or two from other people <laughs> as well here and there, often from friends, you know, from, from people who weren't writers themselves, but who gave her ideas, from friends who were writers. She takes a lot quite often from H.G. Wells. But in this case, it's been suggested very credibly by um, a man called Terry Thompson that she takes her ending and Laura's demise um, from Frankenstein. And that's her huge echoes from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in um, Laura's death and in how it's depicted and how Laura is found. So I think that's very interesting as well. In terms of what she puts in from Frankenstein, I think that could be somebody who just really appreciates a good story. Um, The parallels are are strong, but there's no evidence for lifting passages or anything like that. So, I mean, in, in Frankenstein, you have a situation where they the newlyweds, the husband, who is Victor Frankenstein, um, leaves the room on a night when he's been told that there's danger. But because he's so selfish and self-centered, the idea is that he assumes it's dangerous to him and not to his wife. So he leaves her alone and he leaves her vulnerable. And uh, even though she's feeling very uneasy, this woman who's called Elizabeth Lavenza in the Frankenstein story, um, who is very like the Laura character. She's artistic. She's good. She's innocent. She's very scared and worried that something awful is going to happen. Her husband says, don't be silly. No, don't be ridiculous. But I'm going to go and see. I, I believe there's a threat out there to me and I'll go and seek it down. And when he leaves her alone in this unlocked room, very similar to the unlocked cottage, um, the monster comes in and, and kills her and when he comes back to find her the the language and the imagery is really striking in that she's lying there with her hair loose hanging over her face almost exactly as the Laura character is described in um, in Nesbitt's story that's very fascinating. I, I really liked the the description. The, the, I really liked the uh, description that we get here of of the way that Laura looks as as she's just slumped over this table here with her hair down. Because to me, that really spoke to the sort of intimacy in their in their marriage. That she, you know, she's waiting for her husband to come back, and so she's she's really sort of caught in this kind of private, intimate 
moment in her home by this this like walking evil statue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so gosh, I actually got a shiver there when you said that. It's kind of weird. There's <laughs> <laughs> um, this suggestion as well. It's very um, unclear. It's, it's unspoken in the story, but suggested that Laura may have been defiled, that she may have been raped. You know, that right. the, one of the reasons why she's so disheveled is because this not only has this creature, this marble man or these marble men killed her, but that they may also have raped her. Um, that has been seen by a number of critics who've read the story, but it's it's not overt in the story. Um, even some suggestion that the finger that she's holding is a very phallic symbol, you know. So there's all of that as well layered on top of everything else. And as you say, she probably wrote in two days. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that I think that reading I think lines up also with just the the sort of euphemistic use of the word deeds yes. by, by Mrs. Yes. Dorman, which you know just I, I don't know deed, deeds is a, is a term that shows up in the medieval Latin uh, and, and ancient Latin all the time. That's as you just say deeds. People did deeds, but so frequently it means something that you would not actually say in polite company. When, oh, when oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, that very much ties in as well with, with what has happened to this woman or what appears to happen to this woman. Well, I, I, I hope that Jack feels bad about it, though I'm not sure I really sense that in the narration of this story. No, he doesn't seem terribly contrite, really, does he? Yeah. <laughs> in fact, if anything, really, the story opens with him saying, I've told other people about this story and no one believes me. But let me let me set you right. This ghost story really happened to me. He doesn't open with, can you believe that my wife died and it's all my fault? Let me tell yeah, you about it. <laughs> I completely ignored her and, and she died as a result. <laughs> no, he's very much portrays himself as the victim, doesn't he? This awful thing happened to me through no fault of my own. How unlucky was I? Yeah. Well, before we close out, do you have any last thoughts about Edith Nesbitt that you want to leave listeners with? Yeah, I think that we probably haven't talked very much about how the marriage in at the centre of the story is quite similar to Nesbitt's own marriage. But she gives very strong clues as well, because the nicknames that are used, so Jack refers to Laura as Pussy. And that was a name, a nickname that was used all the time in the Nesbitt family, um, well, in the Bland family, Um Hubert Bland called her Pussycat and Pussy all the time. So I think that's a very clear clue and indication that she's in some ways talking about her own marriage here and how she's treated. Um, and certainly there are huge echoes of her own marriage and of how she was ignored and of how her husband saw himself as this. He saw himself as a very progressive man. And he he was in some sense, politically, he was very progressive, but he was unbelievably badly behaved towards women. He was a terrible philanderer. He had huge... Um, gender essentialist beliefs of women staying in the home and, and he had this idea a very convenient idea that every woman was entitled to have a baby and this would be the most fulfilling thing that could ever happen to them and that he was quite happy to help them along you know with that experience and hence having the two babies with Alice Hudson so I think a lot of, of Jack is Hubert Bland and quite a lot of Laura is Edith Nesbitt although Edith Nesbitt I think would have a lot more agency and power and strength than Laura who becomes a victim of of her timidity in a way and her inability to speak up and to, to defend herself and to have better agency. You know, before I, I I read your book about Nesbitt, I, I had known that that Nesbitt was, uh, had, you know, one of the founders of the or an important member anyway of the the Fabian Society, and that also that was true of her husband. And so I'd, I had always had just had this image informed by absolutely nothing of the two of them having a really good and close relationship, and also of her being more of a feminist than it turns out that she really mm. is. Were, were was their marriage not actually very like, strong? Their their personal bond with each other very strong. Um, their marriage was complicated. He 
he treated her very badly, uh, but I think they did actually love each other. And certainly they stayed together until his death. And she was devastated when he died. She was very upset. He, he died relatively young. She made a second marriage then. She married um, a man called Tommy Tucker. And I think it was only when she had her second marriage to this really kind, sweet man who absolutely loved her and put her at the centre of everything. But she sort of realised, oh, my goodness, that first marriage was actually very abusive. She talks a lot about how I can finally relax and somebody who cares for me, somebody who really loves me. I'm wrapped in this cocoon of, of kindness and love. I think it only occurred to her how fraught and how difficult her first marriage had been. But she sort of thrived on the excitement of it all as well. I mean, they had a lot in common. They had their politics in common. They had the huge interest in literature and art and they had fantastic parties and he was great fun I think Schubert Bond was, <laughs> was great fun he probably would have made great friends but not a terribly good husband so the, their marriage was a success on some levels but very difficult on others and um, she often turned her attention to other men as well um, she had a, a long and probably almost certainly un, unconsummated um, love affair with uh, George Bernard Shaw um, where she poured out all her her uh, difficulties with her husband in letters to him. She would have been involved with several other young men as well, had very close friendships bordering on relationships with them. Uh, it wouldn't have been also that unusual at the time to have a, a Victorian marriage where the man was quite the philanderer, but yet at the same time portrayed outwardly this idea of sort of domestic bliss, you know. So they weren't that in common in their situation, but I don't think it was a particularly successful marriage, no. One of the things I really enjoyed in in your book was you were you were making use of the these sort of oral uh, accounts from from Nesbitt's uh, friends that showed up in that that very first uh, near contemporary biography that you you had brought up and mm, by Doris Langley Moore I should credit her yes Doris Langley Moore wrote that that first biography right right one of the places where you use that actually is in talking about um, I guess what we would describe in in romantic comedy terms is the meet cute between Nesbitt and and her future husband which is that she was in engaged to someone else when they met a, a co-worker of That's he was right. a co-worker of the person she was actually engaged to and I think the, the description of that uh, it was that that Bland really just actually maybe was kind of magnetic that there was just a lot of kind of attraction there between yes. the two of them even though they might not really have actually been all that compatible uh, in a mature in a mature sense right that they just she just couldn't stay away from him and vice versa Yes, I think that's true. I mean, he, he had this sort of magnetic attraction and she was very young at the time. Um, she would have been only about 19 or 20 when they first met. Um, and they clearly consummated the relationship quite early on and before marriage. So she was sort of enthralled to him, really, I think. You know, she absolutely was bowled over by this exciting, strong man. She also had quite a difficult family life of her own. So by the time she met him, she was just living with her mother in relative poverty in increasingly smaller and smaller and smaller sort of boarding houses in, in London by then. They had moved around the country quite a bit. So marriage would have offered her a way out as well, you know, would have offered her the chance of a new home, of a new life. Um, pregnancy made it almost inevitable that she would end up married to this man. But I think there was more to it than that too, because she did retain a great admiration for him. She admired his politics hugely. She admired his writing. Shortly after he died, she edited and wrote the foreword to an anthology of his essays. And actually, he was a good writer. I mean, he could um, write a very compelling and convincing newspaper column or, or essay in support of his, his beliefs. So I could see that he would be a very exciting person to be involved in, but not a very reliable person. 
Well, again, I, I, I say this would make an amazing TV show. So I hope that uh, I hope Netflix will give you a call about that okay, soon. <laughs> well, can I before we before we sign off on this episode, can I ask you one more question? And it, it's it's uh, do you have plans to do any more biographies? Yeah, I have a number of ideas kind of sort of floating around at the moment. And I'm talking to my agent and my publisher about them, but I definitely would like to do more. But I definitely would like to continue writing about women and women who have been marginalized um, and get their voices to, to be more, more central, I think. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult to know. There are so many different women to write about. It's just question which one. <laughs> so, I mean, there's been a number of women who I've looked at and thought their lives would make great stories, but they just probably haven't had enough appeal. Um, often when, you, when you're writing about women, they only come to prominence through the men they were associated with. There is, there is a book, actually, that I, I started writing and, and had a bit of success with, but never actually made it to publication. And that was a book about Harriet Shelley, who's the first wife of Percy Shelley. Um, ah, yeah, and she's a fascinating. I think her story is very tragic, and her life is very short. But to me, she's a fascinating conduit um, for getting at the experience of women of her time, um, women who lived in in the early eighteen um, hundreds, who were so completely dependent on men, and who very often had a very difficult time. And a lot of women associated with those romantic poets and that whole circle suffered greatly um, as a result of their association. So I wanted to write about her and that book got quite far advanced. And in fact, I, I won the Keith Shelley Essay Prize based on, on writing about her um, and a, a number of other awards, but it never came to anything because I think her life was seen as perhaps just too lacking in, in her own achievements, you know, that she was almost interesting by association with, with famous men rather than for having achieved anything by herself. But I still think she's a fascinating character because I think she allows us to see how women experienced life at that time and how difficult it was for them. Well, I've really tremendously enjoyed reading and, and talking about this particular story with you. And of course, Nesbitt wrote a lot more supernatural stories and, and weird fiction, things that we would certainly cover on this on this show. So uh, looking forward to getting deeper into her into her work and, and seeing these different different facets of her and, and also uh, checking out some uh, some of her kids books as my uh, my own child gets old enough to, to be reading. So I'm very grateful to have your recommendation there as well. So, Eleanor, let me just say thank you again for, for guest hosting here with me today. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Glenn. Well, if you, dear listener, if you would like to talk about this story, I hope you'll drop by the forums at claytemplemedia.com or our subreddit. And please do be sure to check out both of Eleanor's books here. You can get Wild's Women and The Life and Loves of E. Nesbitt wherever you get your books. Uh, I'll have some links in the show notes for you as well. Uh, Eleanor, where else can people find you on the internet to keep up with what you are doing? Um, I do have a WordPress site, uh, which is called EA Fitzsimons at WordPress.com. So I do try and put as often as possible, put up some extra writing and some essays and some links up there. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Eleanor Fitz. That's probably where I'm most active, too active. My publishers <laughs> would argue. Um, and that's, they're probably the best places, really. All right. And well, Brandon and I are going to be back on March 23rd with a, a regularly scheduled episode. This will be the first of two episodes on The Inmost Light by Arthur Mackin. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>